We good? Okay. So Mark's going to be teaching today in our Glory of God series, but we always give a testimony in front of the message because we are not just an information church, we're a demonstration church. Meaning if we just teach on it but never see it, it's just a history book. But if we teach on it and then Jesus follows the word with signs following, then we realize he's active today and he gets all the glory. It increases our faith and it becomes a, a, a snowball effect and it just gains momentum. So I've got a great testimony this morning I'm going to share. How many of you are praying for your kids? Just raise your hand. Yeah, you're praying for your kids, aren't you? Well, I'm praying for mine too. Isabella Grace who you know grew up in this church and this year she went to Point Loma Nazarene University and she's been dealing with um, some real anxiety and stress, double majoring and like having breakdowns like three times a week and we've talked talked on the phone. But don't, I mean, you know uh, that sometimes the best counsel can't reach down into the depth of someone's soul. Only Jesus can, right? So I've been trying to encourage her and listen to this. Last Thursday, I went to a college group a Thursday night college group and the, the pastor preached on the Holy Spirit and it was really powerful. At the end, he did an altar call and I was up there on my knees praying. All of a sudden, the Holy Spirit fell on me like a wave and I was consumed with laughter and speaking in tongues and it lasted for about 20 minutes before I began, before I began to feel like there was supposed, then I began to feel like there was supposed to be physical healing that night. One of the church leaders said she needed prayer for her back. So we began to pray over her. When we were done, she said she thought it was better, but she didn't really specify what it felt like, except that there was no pain. She seemed hesitant to accept that a healing took place, but I left that night believing she was healed. Today I met with her for coffee and she told me the story of her back problems. For seven years, she dealt with hip, back and neck disalignment and just going to work had been extremely difficult for her she said even just the slightest pressure on her back was painful and walking and sitting in chairs was sometimes excruciating she said she is four months into an expensive year-long program at her doctor to try and manage her back pain but she said since that night she's pretty much she had pretty much no pain She says she's been starting to go to the gym again, working out again, and can pretty much do everything normally again, (laughs) pain-free. Isn't that awesome? Woo! Amen. Francisco, here we go. Francisco, you frightened me. You're entirely too free. This is not a place for humor, Francisco. This is Christian stuff. We don't have humor when we have Christian stuff. I apologize for Francisco. He's not himself. He doesn't know what he's doing. Forgive him, Lord. He knows not what he does. Okay, this is the next installment in our Glory of God series. I had a message. John and I discussed what this message would be about a month ago, and this week, when I sat down to put it together, it just didn't seem right. And so I thought a lot about it and scratched my head and dug in my files and found something that, as soon as I looked at it, I realized this is what I'm supposed to preach. So I think it has significance. I think for many of you, it might answer some questions. Are you ready? Yeah. Yeah. All right. 
I find, uh, well, before we get to this first, let me say this. When we talk about the glory of God, we've discussed many aspects of the glory of God. We've uh, talked about how God is glorified in how we suffer. God is glorified in how we rely on him and draw close to him in the middle of adversity. And that's certainly one of the ways that God is glorified. But most of the time in the Bible, God is not glorified through how we respond to adversity. He's glorified through how he does something about adversity. He's a God of power. And he is glorified when he displays his power. Because, look, if we built a church on the basis of human potential, and we said, we're going to do the very best job that a human can do in building a church for God, the worst thing that could happen is that we would succeed. Because if we succeed in building something, where's his display of power? He is most evident when we have reached the end of our rope. Because then he's doing the things only God can do. So when we're talking about his glory, much of the time we're talking about some sort of display of his supernatural nature. Through a demonstration of the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit. Remember Paul said, I don't come with an eloquent message. I'm not going to help you to faith through human wisdom, I'm looking for a demonstration of the power of the Holy Spirit. That your faith would rest not on the eloquence of men, man, but on the power of God. Now this can come a variety of ways. It can be a subtle thing. You know those moments when you just sense God's love for you? There's no, there's, there's no apparent change, perhaps. You just sense his love. Or it can be very, very dramatic. Like that experience that Bella had this week. That overwhelming sense of his presence that inspires awe and causes you to say, God, you are simply amazing. Yeah. You're outside of my experience. You're profound or a supernatural healing, or maybe an incredibly accurate prophetic word. Whatever the event, it is an experience of his supernatural nature and his power. So here's the question. If if what we're looking for is him to be himself with us, in his supernatural power and presence, and it's only something he can do, what's our part? What's our part? in attracting the glory of God. Mm. I became intrigued with this verse. Absolutely intrigued. This is, guys, this is a, an amazing verse. Romans 1.20. Ever since the creation of the world, His, God's, eternal power and divine nature, invisible though they are, now this is very, very interesting, They're invisible to us, but they can be understood and seen through the things that he has made. So, of course, we're without excuse in how we choose to respond to him. What this verse is saying is that nature contains within itself a reflection in the physical, natural world of the very nature of God. Are you with me? 
This is a very, very profound thing. Not only does it mean without, we're without excuse when we deny his existence or deny our need, our need of him, <laughs> we, it's, it's much more than that. It's if you want to understand God better, look to creation. That's why there is no disharmony between good science and good religion. They fit. But that's not the point. What this verse is telling us is that built into nature is the very character of God. Now, this is interesting because God is two things, which we're going to bring together in this message. The first thing that he is is unity. How many is our God? Three. Three. How many is our God? One. How many is our God? Three. How many is our God? He's, he's three distinct personalities passionately in love with one another. He is the perfect expression of humility because each one of the persons of the Trinity defers the attention to the other. He is perfect unity. He is perfect love. That's the first thing that he is. The second thing that he is is, in, is inexpressibly powerful. He is absolute in his authority. All power we experience in any way is derivative. It all comes from him. Now look, if this is his nature, then creation, what we call nature, should reflect these two things. There should be a relationship in nature between unity and power. Are you tracking with me? Do you see the logic? He is perfect unity and he is perfect power. And these divine attributes should be evident in creation. There should be a relationship in nature between unity and power. Is there? I have a science background. I did a pre-med before I went to law school. And... I took a lot of bio, biochemistry and genetics, microbiology, etc., etc., etc. And let me tell you something. There is a relationship between unity and power in nature. It's called synergy. It is a physical phenomenon that exists in creation right from the molecular level to the level of animals and humanity. The whole is greater than the sum of the parts. Where there is unity there is greater power. It's good, Mark. Very, very interesting piece. I, I, I researched this years ago, actually over 20 years ago. And this is, this is an incident that I found. There was, a, <clears throat> there was a country fair in which they had a plow horse competition. And some of you probably heard about this, but it's fascinating. There's a plow horse competition, and the two finalists, one pulled 700 pounds on a sled, and the other pulled 800 pounds on a sled. And at the end of the competition, somebody got this great idea. Look, why don't we put them together and see if they can pull 1,500 pounds together? 
700, 800, they should be able to pull 1,500 together. What did they pull? 2,000. They pulled 2,000 pounds together. God has built into nature the principle that more power is released when we function in unity than when we are divided. And we see this in human affairs illustrated in the Bible. Where, can anyone guess the passage? This story perfectly illustrates the power of unity. No. No. Guys, it's a, it's a story in the Old Testament. Who said Babel? You get all your tithe back. Oh, you didn't tithe? You didn't give God any money this morning? Well, then. He's never been here before. He's never been here. Good answer. Guys, listen to this story. This is an amazing story. Genesis 11, 1 to 8. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And they said, come. Now I'm going I'm to accent some things here so you get the sense of what's going on. This is the beginning of the ism we call humanism. This is where it all started. You ready? Come let us, us build ourselves. ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we'll be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. And this is a tower which was to elevate people to, to God. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which mortals had built. And the Lord said, and the Lord said, Look, they are one people, and they all have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. Nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Uh, just to refresh ourselves, did the Lord say this? then it's an accurate description of what's going on, isn't it? If they stay in unity, there is nothing they can't do. And he has a solution. Come, let's go down and confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the earth, and they left off building the city, and they have never been able to build it since. God sees man's unity in an effort to elevate themselves to his level and make a name for themselves on par with God. And he says this. He's reasoning here. I'm reading into the text a little bit. If I don't remove their unity, there's nothing they can't do. So he does. He destroys their unity. He is, in effect, in this moment, cursing humanity with disunity, and humans have been in disunity 
ever since. Now, is there anybody in this room that doubts that? What are we living in this country right now? Greatest level of disunity other than the Civil War that it's ever seen. And it's just getting worse. God has confounded our ability to be united. But there's one exception. There's one exception. What is it? The church. The church. It's us. Now listen to this. Psalm 133. We all know this verse. It's, it's famous. It just isn't true often enough. But it's famous. Psalm 133, 1-3. How very good. How very good. He looked at creation. He looked at creation in the moment he'd created it. And he said, it is very good. How very good and pleasant is it when kindred live together in unity. It's like the precious oil on the head running down upon the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down over the collar of his robe. See, there's more than enough of the blessing. There's more than enough than of the oil. It's not just a little bit. It's running all over him. Come on. It's like the dew of Hermon. It's like the fresh rain from heaven that falls in the morning, falls in the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord ordained slash commanded. The word means he commanded. There is a commanded blessing. There is a commanded blessing that comes when Christians live in unity together. And it is the one exception to the curse of disunity that covers mankind. There is one exception. It is the blessing that is upon the church. And he's given us his spirit of unity so that we can live in unity. And people, this means more than just being happy together like Thanksgiving or Christmas. This means... That we have the power that flows from unity, which has been built into creation. This puts us ahead of everyone else on the planet, the church. But it's way, way, way better than that synergy is available to us. Way beyond the power of synergy, we have the blessing of heaven on earth. God's divine power is given to us to experience more of heaven on earth. And how did he teach us to pray? Your will be done. Your kingdom come on heaven as it is in earth. But it's conditional. This blessing can be thwarted by disunity. Because it's a blessing that comes when there's unity. About uh, 25, 25 years ago, up in Canada, I was part of a group of pastors. We met together every week. Drove out to a retreat center outside of the city every week. Spent a day together praying for the city asking God to do a greater work. 
One day, I, was, I remember the moment I was driving on the highway back to the city. It was raining. And I was frustrated by the verse where Jesus says, you'll do greater works than I've done. Has that verse ever gotten under your skin? I kind of wish he hadn't said it. Because now I have to live with it. And I was really upset. And I I said, I was talking out loud. I said, Lord, come on. I said, where are the greater works? Where are the greater works? You promised us greater works. Where are the greater works? And he spoke this thought into my mind. He said this, my prayer and my promise are both unfulfilled. My prayer and my promise are both unfulfilled. And I didn't know what he was talking about. I said, I don't know what you're talking about. I know the promise of greater works, but I don't understand what you're talking about with your prayer. And he directed me immediately to this passage. John 17, 20 through 21. He's praying to his father. This is a deathbed prayer. This is the night before he dies. These are the things on his heart which are the most important thoughts to him. I ask not only on behalf of these, he's talking about his disciples that are in the room at the time, but I'm also praying on behalf of those who will, future, believe in me through their word. Who is that? Who is that? It's us. It's every Christian who has ever lived since he uttered those words up until the present moment and unto his return. And I'm praying for you here this morning. I'm praying for you that you may all be one. Just like you, Father, are in me and I am in you, that perfect unity that exists in the Trinity. Just like you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I've told you this before, but he is hinging his credibility on our unity. He's praying for us, and this prayer has not been fulfilled. When I first started researching unity 25 years ago, I looked it up. 25,000 denominations 20 years ago, 25 years ago, 41,000 today. 41,000 Christian denominations. His promise for greater works for the glory demonstrated amongst us and his prayer for greater unity are related. The more in unity we are, the more of heaven on earth we experience. 
And Satan has a perfect understanding of this. And his chief goal against heaven on earth is not that you are sick. His chief goal is not that you are poor. His chief goal is not your persecution. His chief goal is our disunity. And Jesus had a perfect understanding of this the night before he died. And listen to what he said. I'm not asking you. (laughs) He's talking about his, his people. He's talking to God. I'm not asking you to take them out of the world. I'm asking you to protect them from the evil one. Now, if that's all he said, we could interpret it any way we want. We could say, well, of course, you know, he's probably praying that we don't get sick. He's probably praying that we all get rich. He's probably praying that hair will grow on Mark's head. But that's not what he's praying for protection for. Here's what he's praying for. John 17, 11, Holy Father, protect them in your name that you have given me so that they will have perfectly comfortable lives. So that nothing bad will ever happen. So that their pets will live to be old. Huh. So that they may be one as we are one. There's so many things he could have prayed for us for protection for. He only prayed for one. That we would stay in unity. That we would be one. The biggest impediment we have to more of heaven on earth is disunity between you and your brothers and sisters. So how do we protect our unity? Well, we have a, a mission statement in this church, and it just came to mind, and I thought we should review it. Loving Jesus, loving one another, and loving the lost. Do you remember that? Loving Jesus, loving one another, and loving the lost. You see, firstly and foremost, our unity doesn't come from trying to be acceptable to someone else. It doesn't come from trying to accept a person that's different from us. It doesn't come from a whole bunch of things. It doesn't come from correct doctrine. It doesn't come from never arguing. It comes from one thing. It comes from loving Jesus. You see, if he's the center, then we're all facing each other. Hello? If he's the center and we're gathered around him and we're all looking at him in the middle, we're all looking at each other, but we see ourselves through what's in between us and what's in between us is him. And he is the only reason we are together at all. Now this is going to come as a shock. Right now, in this church, 
I told someone this the other day, so it's legit. Told someone else the other day, there isn't anyone in this church right now that I don't like. Do you know that that's a miracle? <laughs> oh, come on, people. It's a, it's a miracle. He didn't tell us to like one another. He told us to love one another. When you like one another, it's a bonus. Okay? Like it's a huge flipping bonus when you love one another, when you like one another. But you don't have to like one another. All you have to do is love one another, which is very different. Shut up, Phil. But there's some people that bother me a little bit. I'm teasing. I love that guy. He, he makes the best food that I absolutely love. You see, it's easy to like the people you like because they're kind of much like you. It's hard to love the ones that aren't much like you. You don't have to like everybody. Just love them. He's the center, and he's got to remain the center of our lives. Not our theology, not our style, not even our common vision. Whenever Jesus is not the center of our fellowship, disunity will inevitably follow. And Satan wants your focus off of Jesus and onto doctrinal disputes or issues of methodology or style or personal preferences, especially personal preferences. God, I'm, look, I'm sorry, people, but there's some things to say here. I'm really tired. Well, actually, that's not true. I was going to say of hearing this, but I don't hear this in our church very often. Once in a while, I'll hear somebody say something like, I didn't like the worship on Sunday because they didn't sing my favorite song. I think God's really upset that they didn't play your favorite song. He probably feels your pain, too. I wonder how often he gets his favorite song sung in worship. See, our personal preferences are nothing but our personal preferences. They don't carry great weight. Guess what? Our personal preferences actually don't matter. God doesn't rejoice with the Holy Spirit and Jesus saying, Look, Mark finally got what he wanted on a Sunday. Oh, this is great. Doesn't matter. Love for Jesus has to come above all of these things. Let's go on to our second mission statement. Well, let's go on to the third, loving the lost. We'll do the middle one in a moment. We're not just united in our love for Jesus. We also have to be united in his purposes. Hello? It's not enough to say I love you, but I ignore your mission. It's not enough to say you're the center of my life, but your purposes aren't that important to me. We live for what he lives for. As I was sent, so send I you. He said, as I was sent, so send I you. We can't divorce Jesus from his mission. When we d divorce Jesus from our, his mission, our faith becomes sentiment. It becomes sentimental. It's not just how we feel about him, it's how we follow him. 
In fact, you can follow him without even having great feelings at the moment. You just do it because you know it's his will. To love him is to join him and he's on a mission. And a common purpose and a common vision tend to unite people. When a church stops looking outward in order to bless the community, it begins to look inward and self-focus and inevitably criticism arises. And disunity is just around the corner. We unite around a common person, Jesus, and we, we unite around a common purpose, and that's reaching the lost and loving the world. Now, I wish I could say that most disunity comes from a lack of focus on Jesus or a lack of a common outward focus, but it's not been my experience. My experience has been that Satan is most effective when he's attacking our love for one another. Love for Jesus, love for the lost, love for one another. You see, it's in our relationships with one another that we lose our unity and end up with less heaven on earth. People, am I right? Yes. I think so. Why are our relationships so important? Because God is a relationship. Three in one. He is. He doesn't value relationship. He is a relationship. It is the quintessential expression of his nature. He is love in love with love. He's a triangle of love. And the love just keeps moving from point to point to point to point to point to point to point. And then he invites us into the triangle and pretty soon it's a circle and the love is always moving from one to the next. And it is in the expression of our love for one another that his quintessential nature is made visible to the world. So Satan's best enemy, his best, his best weapon against us, is against our love for one another. And what is the most common way that he does this? It's taking offense. It's taking offense. <laughs> this is actually a true story. It was years ago, and the church was a big church in Canada that we were leading, and... Um, Every Sunday, there would be a lot of visitors, a lot of new people, and many of them would want to say hi to the pastor. So there would be, and many of them wanted prayer from us. And I would stand there, and there would be like, I don't know, six, seven, ten, twelve people waiting in line to say hi. And that's a high priority to welcome people. So I'm standing there waiting, and, and you know, it takes a little while. One of our leaders, woman in the church, was about... She wanted to talk to me. She's about fourth or fifth in line, and she was waiting for these people. And she got really annoyed and left the line. And I thought, well, it must be, you know, because it takes too long. And I understand that. You can always leave. Don't have to wait in line. 
She came to me after when the line was all over and she said, you really hurt me. And this true story. You really hurt me. I, I said, what did I do? She said, well, you were talking with those people in front of me in line. I'm not making this up. You didn't make eye contact with me. I was caught up with other people at the time. I guess I, I, guess I failed. She was actually offended because someone else was getting the attention ahead of her. That sounds like something that happens between two and three-year-olds. Taking offense... So here's the application for the message this morning. In view of all this, the most important question you can ask yourself and God is this. How are my relationships with my brothers and sisters? Is there anyone I have not forgiven? Is there anyone I need to ask to forgive me? Father, how can I love more unselfishly? Who needs my love and attention right now? Let's close our eyes and apply this. Let's actually expect God to answer these questions right now. Holy Spirit, you are so, so present in this meeting this morning. So present in the worship. So present right now. And you have a vested interest in the quality of our relationships. You care more than we can ever imagine. You are amazing. So we need your help here. And we don't want to grope around in the dark trying to answer these questions, come up with my answer to these questions. We need to hear from you. Holy Spirit, how are my attitudes towards my brothers and sisters? Holy Spirit, is there anyone I have not forgiven? Please show me now. Holy Spirit, is there anyone I need to ask to forgive me? Is there any relationship that I know is just not right? Holy Spirit, how can I love more unselfishly? What would you like to change in me? What attitude would you like to start right now changing in me?
Holy Spirit, is there anyone that needs my love and attention right now in my life? thank Mark for that wonderful teaching. So this application is for marriages, for homes, families, which should be the safest place on earth, and sometimes they're a war zone. Uh, Don't make a commitment to not be the source of division, because you become the door for Satan to come in and destroy your marriage, your family, a church. Draw a line in the spiritual sand and say, I will not be used with the devil to bring, be the one that brings this unity. And love is the bomb that blows apart his devices. So let's make that commitment. Now, that teaching might give more gravity to what Jesus said to us about bringing heaven on earth and that is where two of you on earth agree that word means harmony anything they ask my father in heaven will do it that's why we have prayer teams in this church and that's why we see miracles through these prayer teams I'm going to ask the prayer teams to come down front right now and if you have any need brokenness, sickness disease, maybe you want a fresh infilling to the Holy Spirit maybe you've never had your prayer language released whatever it might be someone here is dealing with panic attacks and anxiety that's inordinate jesus is going to break that thing today that's a prophetic word a word of knowledge a gift of the spirits in the bible first corinthians 12 13 14 that somebody here is dealing with severe anxiety panic attacks come down it's not just a natural thing it's a spiritual thing and let the church break that thing off of you so let's all stand And as Josh leads us in worship, you're welcome to come down to pray with these prayer teams. If you've never given your life to Jesus before, come down front. Jesus will forgive you of all your sins and he will breathe his spirit into your soul. You will be what the Bible calls born again or saved. And you will experience a peace that only Jesus can give to you. And you will have a seat reserved in heaven. Salvation is a free gift. So you're welcome to stay and continue worshiping. Come down front where the prayer teams are, or you're welcome to slip out and have some fellowship out front. Guests, please uh, drop off your visitor card out at the table to your left. God bless you. Thanks for coming today. Go to a connect group this week. Jesus is Lord. Amen.